FDBHDD is reminding Georgians to ask their doctor about alternatives to opioid pain medication. Alternatives such as over-the-counter medications and physical therapy can be used to manage pain. More information at opioidresponse.info. Glad to have all of you with us for another day of Political Rewind. And once again, uh, this is a we're all in this together edition of our show. Most of you out there are uh, working out of your homes, out of your apartments. Uh, I do, my, my hats do go off to, my hat goes off to those of you who are still out there in the workplace. The people I see at supermarket checkout uh, counters at uh, coffee shops who are continuing to serve people at uh, whatever retail stores are still open. Um, you are allowing us to occasionally escape from our houses and go out and do necessary work. And for that, we are, I think I can speak for a lot of people and say we're very grateful. But uh, in the meantime, uh, we're doing this show as we've been doing it all week. I'm at home in my studio office in Greater Decatur, and all of our panelists for the time being will be joining us by phone for the most part from their houses as well. Um, before I introduce the panel, I just wanted to remind you, on Monday's show, I said that I thought this was one of those experiences where we, we should hear from all of you about how you're dealing with the coronavirus and um, the, the uh, restrictions it's placed on your lives. And I, I invited you to email me. You can do that by writing to bnigut, B-N-I-G-U-T, at gpb.org. And I wanted to share with you just a couple of notes uh, in a general way. Uh, I got a note from a, a family uh, in town who said that they have, they have a cleaning uh, service that comes into the house, a, a person who comes in to do their cleaning. And they've asked that person to stop coming in, but they've made a point of saying they're going to continue to pay that person. And they invite the rest of us out there who do, in fact, use cleaning services perhaps to do the same thing. I got another note from a woman who had been in the Netherlands with her uh, daughter. They flew back into Hartsfield over the weekend, and uh, she wanted to make sure we understood that the way Hartsfield was handling screenings from people coming into the country was they were doing it on board the planes. They were passing out forms to fill out. And if you indicated on your form that you'd been to one of the countries that had been targeted for particular uh, outbreaks of coronavirus, you were then taken inside the airport for additional screening in a secure location. So I'm really interested in those stories and, again, invite you to connect with me at uh, bnigat at gpb.org. All right. Uh, that all said, um, we're going to move ahead with the show today, and let me introduce our panelists. Um, Jackie Gingrich-Cushman joins us uh, today. Uh, she, of course, is a conservative writer, a columnist, uh, an author, and um, I think, Jackie, that you are coming to me from your, oh, Jackie's looking around for a copy of her book. I'm watching Absolutely. her on Facebook Live so I can see that. <laughs> or not on Facebook Live, on FaceTime. I know, oh, I know, I know, but I, want, I thought I'd make you laugh about that. Um, but no, I'm glad to be with you, and I yeah. am calling from my home in Atlanta, and um, of course, my husband's working from home, and both of our children um, are also uh, now learning from home. So we're all here. Uh, and, uh, well, yes, and if you find a copy of the book, unfortunately, <laughs> we can't show it to our 
listeners today, the people who are watching on Facebook Live, know that they can hear the show on Facebook, but unfortunately we don't have video. We can see each other because we're doing a group FaceTime call. Greg Bluestein is part of that FaceTime call. He, of course, is the political reporter, one of the political reporters, the lead political reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. And I see on my FaceTime Live that, Bluestein, you're sitting in a space in your house with two baseball photographs behind you. Oh, yeah. Um, I'm in my man cave in my basement, surrounded by um, <laughs> my, my, my doodads, my Braves autographs, and uh, my PlayStation and my flat screen TV, where I'll be working for the next couple of weeks. Is that Henry Aaron behind you in one of those pictures? Yeah, I've got DiMaggio, Aaron, King Griffey Jr. I've got Chipper Jones. I've got some of my favorite players. Um, I collected them since I was a kid, so didn't think we could talk right. about baseball. But. All of them, keep, all keeping you company, and uh, and uh, we're glad you could uh, do the show today. In a little while, I'm going to ask you what it's like to be a reporter trying to cover politics under these circumstances. Before I do that, yeah. uh, let me introduce our f- final panelist. Uh, Mary Margaret Oliver, State Representative Mary Margaret Oliver of Decatur, joins us by uh, phone today. Mary Margaret, where are you calling in from? Good morning. I'm at home here with my hound dog, Henry. We are uh, relaxing this morning. (laughs) Mary Margaret, let me start with you. Tell me, give us, if you would, uh, how are your constituents talking to you about what's going on, uh, about their concerns, are they feeling comfortable by the way about the way that the government, whether it's federal or state, is handling this emergency? Just give us a sense of what you're hearing from your constituents. As I leave the home, the the ways which we're only supposed to leave to to go outside, to take a walk, to go to the dog park, to go to the grocery store, and I have gone to the law office where there's only three or four people uh, this week. They're concerned about the economy. We are all talking with each other about what's going to happen next, the economy. Will a $1,000 check to each of us uh, make a difference? How, what is the uh, state budget going to look like by the end of the year? Can we predict anything? No one um, this week has been talking particularly about the presidential election, which is of interest to me. Mm-hmm. My colleagues uh, down the Capitol are talking about concerns they have at home about medical supplies, um, about how there is a, a, a growing apprehension that our medical needs are not going to be made. Here at home, it's, I guess, because I'm in the middle of an Emory community, a medical community, people I see frequently are associated with CDC and um the, the big $8 billion Emory Healthcare Institutions. Um, they are focused more on the economy than the healthcare. They're kind of in the middle of the healthcare system, many of them, recognizing that things are very different. Um, and, and Jackie, you're pretty much sequestered at home like the rest of us as well, but what are what are your neighbors uh how are you what are kinds of conversations whether it's by telephone uh whether it's by text messaging or whatever what what are the kind of conversations going on in your neighborhood in your or in your social community well we've got a couple of things um, going on first of all personally as you know listeners may or may not know my father and his wife um calista are in rome italy so they've um yep. they're about we're guessing what 
between five and 10 days ahead of us in terms of what's happening. Um, he's been very vocal writing and tweeting about what he sees and calling for a sense of urgency for us to go ahead and do what we're doing, which is to physically distance ourselves as, as much as possible from each other. So there is some, some concern there. My sister um, who lives in South Florida has rheumatoid arthritis. So she is on Embryol, which is a biologic, which lowers her immune, her immune system. So I have some concern about her. And I think a lot of us have, you know, everyone either, you know, has, has uh, you know, lower immunity or they're different of age or they have someone they love. Or, so there's a lot of concern and a lot of understanding that we need to do this. But I also have found, for instance, um, my sister's village of Key Biscayne two days ago declared a curfew. And the reason they did that is because they were, well, they have a lot of older people in, in the community. They also have a lot of young people who were still going on the beaches and congregating all hours of the night. And so since people weren't taking it seriously and weren't deciding to pull themselves back, um, they decided to institute a curfew to make sure that people, you know, weren't out um, gathering. So I think, it's, I think it's, it, it widely varies depending on who you are, but I think for most people, there's so much unknown, it's just almost hard to comprehend. Uh, we should point out, of course, that your dad is Newt Gingrich, the former uh, congressman from Georgia, the former Speaker of the U.S. House, and uh, Callista is uh, the was appointed by President Trump to be ambassador to the Vatican. As you point out, Jackie, your dad has been tweeting pretty regularly, cautioning uh, officials in the United States that based on what he's seen around him in Rome, we've got to act with more urgency. At least one of the tweets that I saw from him uh, was an effort to give the Trump administration some uh, support to say to them, you're, you're you know, doing your best, we know, to give them some support, but also, I think, pretty clearly suggesting that we'd better get tougher to try to deal with the problem here, right? Absolutely. And I think he's also trying to, for those that are still saying this isn't a problem, which there are some people out there, unfortunately, saying, oh, this is just a made-up, right, just a made-up um, event. He's saying, no, this is actually, I, I'm living somewhere and watching this happen. This is real. Um, and so the, the sooner we take it seriously and the sooner we take concrete steps, the better off we'll be. So, uh, Greg, it was interesting to hear Jackie talk about a Florida community which has imposed a curfew. Uh, you're a University of Georgia graduate. You pay a lot of attention out there to what's going on in Athens and Clark County. It's interesting that the other night the Athens-Clark County Commission uh, imposed some of the most uh, strict regulations in terms of the virus, banning any any gatherings in restaurants, bars, public spaces, including on streets in residential neighborhoods larger than 10 people. They were looking at and considering the possibility of a curfew, but decided not to go in that direction. Nevertheless, Greg, athens Clark County is starting to take pretty serious uh, action. They are, and, and, and a commissioner tweeted this morning that it's not off the table there, too, so they can still end up doing that. And I think a lot of communities might take the same steps because what we're seeing is in other states, um, governors are, are closing down bars and restaurants and ordering some of these restrictions and even in some places shelter at place, like in San Francisco, the, the Bay Area. Um, Governor Kemp has, has so far balked at that. He says we're not there yet, but, but it, that's where city and, city and county officials step in, and, and the mayor – of Atlanta banned um, gatherings of more than 50 people. Um, you've seen, you just mentioned Athens, how they're taking their own restrictions in their, hand, in their own hands. And I think that we're going to start seeing that all over the state, especially in places where there is a sort of a, hot, a mini hotspot, an epicenter of, um, 
of, of, of outbreak where they feel like they need to take stronger restrictions than the state has taken. Hey, Mary Margaret, uh, Catherine Toomey was on our show, the, the commissioner of public health yesterday for about a half hour. And, and that was one of the questions I asked her. I said, is Governor Kemp now looking at taking an action much like uh, Cuomo in New York, uh, which is to, in fact, uh, really uh, uh, ban most uh, gatherings of people, more than 10 people at a time, and in fact, uh, to perhaps make a statewide effort to shut down as much as possible social interaction. She said that they were looking at it, but hadn't gone in that direction yet. And he confirmed this morning on a, a, a show that he did, a radio show he did in another community, that they're not quite there yet. Are, are they... Do you, would you urge the governor to start looking at this as a statewide problem that needs to be addressed? It's a statewide problem in different ways. <clears throat> First of all, Governor Kemp and all of us are very fortunate, I think, to have Dr. Toomey help us through this very serious medical crisis that we're facing. I think her credibility with all kinds of certainly bipartisan political leaders is very important. I feel myself, and I feel it in my Decatur High Restaurant, high uh, entertainment, uh, the economy of Decatur, that people are are just not out. I don't see people out. There seems to be, hour by hour, as I view it, a greater level of compliance. What is, I think Athens is unique and could probably benefit from some other from a stronger leadership, we um, have to realize how diverse Georgia is and how people's patterns of living are so different. So I'm not urging the governor to take any more aggressive action this morning. Um, I certainly believe that tomorrow could be different. Let let me go over the headlines of uh, today in terms of coronavirus and then ask each of you uh, to weigh in on them. So give me just a moment to do that. Uh, as of uh, yesterday at noon, we had 146 confirmed cases, which is up 25 from Monday. Uh, Catherine Toomey on our show yesterday said, do not be surprised as that number starts to spiral upward by, by large numbers. There's been one depth, death. Uh, we've had uh, cases mostly in metro Atlanta, are the largest concentration, but we've also had them around the state, Polk, Barrow, Charlton, Columbia, uh, uh, Richmond County, and others. Um, we've now had, according to the governor's office, 400 people, 420 people tested. And, uh, that's just, let's go to that, Greg Bluestein. 420 people tested, uh, in a state our size, and, and especially when many of those people are being confirmed as having the virus, uh, we have a long way to go. And Toomey made that clear yesterday in getting test kits out so that uh, public health centers around the state can deal with this virus, Greg. We have a very long way to go on that front. 146 confirmed cases so far, you know, before noon today when there'll be a bigger number. But we have a very long way to go. Um, it's why state officials are saying that even people who have low-grade fevers um, who are otherwise feeling pretty healthy um, shouldn't go rush out and try to get tested. Um, they're, they're saying call medical professionals first, but um, we're, we feel like we're behind the curve on the testing issue. It's one of the things that we've assigned reporter, a team of reporters just to focus on testing at the AJC because it's becoming such an enormous issue. And the state you know, is, is praising the fact that there's 500 
um, more testing kits coming up, and that's still such an insignificant. That's a, such a you know small drop in the bucket in terms of our our total population. And really, it's an issue that's happening um, in other states too. You're hearing about uh, a lack of testing, a lack of preparation from the federal government getting tests available um, to places where we knew this was going to happen. Jim Galloway was out in Tolliver County the other day, and and they're hoping to get five test kits for their little community. You know, they feel like they're immune because they're so far off the map. You know, they're, they're such an isolated community. But the truth is, um, this is going to touch our lives in, a, in, a, in, a, in ways we can't even comprehend. And so that's why these hospitals are scrambling to pre- prepare for this. Jackie, one of the issues about not having enough test kits out there is it's very difficult to really know where the virus is and how widespread it might be. Now, that said... Uh, to me yesterday on our show, and certainly others have, have emphasized uh, here in Georgia and across the country, that not everybody does need to be tested for coronavirus. E- even people who are not in high-risk groups who may show some of the symptoms are not being urged at this point to try to get tested. Nevertheless, Jackie, without testing uh, and a, on a broader scale, it's very difficult to know how, where the virus exists and how it's spreading. Absolutely. You're, you're absolutely right, Bill. And I think um, since we don't know that, I think the assumption has to be made. Again, this is what we talk a lot about. They talked yesterday about physical distancing. Um, originally, we talked a lot about social, but I, I, like the, I like the idea of physical distancing because we can still be social over technology. Um, so we need that because we don't know where it is and we don't know who has it. For I mean, I think we should be very cognizant that anyone we come in, in contact with could potentially have it which is why the six-feet separation is so important when you're with people. And it's really important for us to continue to wash our hands and to do all the things that we're supposed to do, you know, get sleep, make sure that we're, you know, um, eating well, et cetera, because we don't know where the virus is. So I think without knowing, we have to assume that whoever we come in contact with might have it. Uh, Mary Margaret, uh, in terms of things like getting tests in, I know the state is out searching for protective gear for uh, uh, people who work in, in healthcare. And in fact, we, we now have a report from uh, Sanjay Gupta at CNN that nine medical staffers that are part of the Emory Grady uh, medical community have been infected with uh, uh coronavirus. So we know the state's trying to get get that kind of uh, protective gear. We know they're looking for test kits. We know the, the president has now said states should make their best efforts to get ventilators, respirators, other equipment that may be in short supply right now. All that said, you all passed a the supplemental budget, the, the amended budget that takes us through June, which includes $100 million earmarked specifically for uh, the coronavirus. Uh, what will that money be used for? And if there are many things that the money can't, we can't acquire with some of that money, we're still behind the curve, behind the eight ball. The $100 million, as you know, comes from the rainy day fund. And the governor uh, basically, instead of changing the revenue estimate, took $100 million from the rainy day fund, which I think was the right step to take. We uh, did ask, um, of, did ask, what is this money going for? And most of us really have a sense of of attention right now in our public health offices, particularly in the smaller counties, particularly in the smaller counties. I think that bolstering our public health offices, bolstering the testing, uh, going to the private market for whatever the medical supply needs is going to be part of that money. But I will tell you there's been a bipartisan support for Governor Kemp. I think there is a recognition 
even though there's a less of a recognition in the Republican uh, base, as we say, that this is a crisis, I think there's been a bipartisan leadership recognition that this is a crisis. And I think that Governor Kemp will be obligated to and will uh, detail uh, as we go forward how this $100 million is going to be spent. We're also, we're, you know, we're only talking about supplemental budget between now and June 30th. So I think that is a, hopefully an adequate resource for the state to do some emergency responsiveness. And when we come back, um, our task to finalize, which is our only real duty that we have if we, when we come back to work, to finalize our budget for, that starts July 1st, we're going to have a reduced revenue estimate um, for 2021 budget. We're going to have some serious economic questions and some data in front of us. So the rainy day fund will be uh, drawing our attention again in my guesstimate at this point. Uh, I should point out, by the way, in, the, in talking about test kits, I got a note from Cody Hall, the governor's press secretary, who pointed out, you know, they're starting to use private providers of testing uh, kits. Mm-hmm. Uh, Quest Diagnostics, we, uh, Cody tells me, is delivering 500 test kits to Department of Public Health warehouses today. And what they're hoping to be able to do is send those kits out to district public health offices uh, around the state uh, sometime in the next 24 hours, probably. But, uh, Greg, uh, all that said, we're still short of tests. But, you know, Mary Margaret made an interesting point, Greg. The, the fiscal year budget begins July 1st. You, we all know, those of us who've covered the Capitol for many years know how complicated the process of, of passing a new budget uh, can be. Um, if they can't get back into session in the weeks ahead, what, are, what do we know about the safeguards built into being able to start uh, spending on a budget that hasn't been approved by July 1st? Yeah, it's a really interesting point. And, and you know, lawmakers I've talked to are keeping their fingers crossed, hoping that they can be able to get in. There's no way to remote vote or else they would have done it Monday, right? Um, yeah. Most of the lawmakers in that in the Capitol on Monday did, wanted to be anywhere but there, um, uh, you know, voting on, on something that ended up taking seven or eight hours to vote on. Yeah, they they came. Let's let me just make clear uh, what you're talking about. On Monday, the legislators were called back into a special session to vote on the governor's request to have emergency powers. Go ahead. You got it. And it was supposed to be a short vote. It ended up being a very long day. Um, that being said, uh, there, there's, there, there is obviously a way that lawmakers can communicate with each other without being in the same room. So I'm sure that if that happened, there could be there could be remote meetings and remote conversations, just like the governor has been doing um, with the with the press uh, since this pandemic uh, began to spread. Um, but yeah, as as the law is written now, they need to be in the same room, in the same physical space, uh, to vote and to and to and to pass these things, these major bills out. Um, so it's gonna it's gonna prompt a lot of these discussions all over the nation because we're not the only Georgia legislature, the state legislature that had to suspend its duties. Um, Right now, from what I hear from state officials, is they're they're hopeful that lawmakers could come back in in a month or two, um, but there is the chance that that they won't be able to. And in that case, we might see a stopgap budget. You know, maybe maybe something uh, that could be later amended later even on later on this year to keep the government running, um, but might not be the exact you know blueprint 
um, to keep the government running for a full year, maybe just for a couple months. Bill, I uh, this is Mary Margaret again. Uh, I uh, I really my guess is that we will not come in before May nineteenth. That's my guess. Um, I think we'll come in being the after, date of the primary. The date of the primary. My guess is we'll come in after May nineteenth. My guess is, and I'm kind of leaning that this is what I would urge the governor to do at this time, to come back not for the 10 days we have left in our 40-day session constitutionally, but come in for fewer days and pass the budget and, and adjourn. I, um, if, the, <clears throat> if the trajectory of this disease virus goes as experts tell us it's going to go, even with the efforts we're making, we're in for a serious medical crisis the next two to six weeks. And that takes us right into May. So um, projecting and guessing about all this is all we can do right now. But my concern, my thought is pass a budget, see where we are economically mid-late May, and go home. Um, let's do this. Thank you for that, Mary Margaret. Uh, Jackie, Greg, Mary Margaret, let's take a break. When we come back, I want to talk a little bit more. We've been talking about the state. Let's talk a little bit about this really, I think, important, important change of tone coming out of the, uh, the White House from the president the last couple of days and what it might mean as we move forward with dealing with this crisis. And then let's talk, yes, about politics. We've had three primaries <laughs> last night, and, uh, and uh, we should talk about those. And we have a new AJC poll on uh, how people are feeling about the Democratic presidential contest and one of the two state Senate races. So we'll look at those issues and more. But first, let's pause uh, for these messages. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. Welcome back to uh, Political Rewind. Uh, we have uh, Mary Margaret Oliver, Greg Bluestein, Jackie Gingrich Cushman with us on the show today. And of course, uh, as we're doing on every show during this emergency that we're dealing with, uh, they're joining us by telephone, uh, which means, uh, you know, the audio isn't maybe the best in the world, but you know what? What they're saying is as good as it always is. Uh, <laughs> Jackie, let me let me start with you on this because you are uh, you you identify yourself, I think, as a Trump uh, supporter. I mean, you've taken issue with him at times, but for the most part, I think it's safe to say you're a Trump Republican. Um, this shift in the president's tone the last few days, his sudden uh, apparent understanding of how serious this is. First of all, would you agree with my premise that he has made a shift in tone? And second, if so, are you relieved that he has? Well, I do think he's changed his tone. And I think more importantly, which I think makes sense for what's happening, is he's kind of stepped back a little bit and let some of the health professionals answer a lot of the questions and take a lot of the, um, you know, take, take kind of their lead in, in some degree um, more than determining things himself, which I think makes a lot of sense. 
Um, but I think it is a really challenging time just because we don't have a roadmap to where this is going to go. And I think you're kind of watching him um, change his tone and tactics as things unfold. Mary Margaret, I think there are a lot of people who have noticed that change of tone. Certainly, there are there are critics out there who believe that it, that changing the tone is a good step, but that there are an awful lot of things the federal government has not yet stepped up to the plate to deal with. Um, but we are we are at a point where people are sort of after having been locked in our partisan corners people are beginning to recognize that we've really got to somehow pull together for all of this. So how do you balance that in terms of President Trump and how the federal government is responding right now, Mary Margaret? It's a dramatic different tone from Trump. Trump, President Trump, um, like all politicians, but he more visibly so, is more an um, active participant in his reelection. And I think that he has come to be told, listen, the people are telling him, this is a very serious matter and is going to impact your reelection. Maybe for the first time he's listening to communications PR people, or maybe for the first time he's really been, I don't want to use the word humbled, but um, it, it might be an ap- ap- appropriate word, humbled in terms of the seriousness of what he's facing. Um, turning it over to the medical experts has been, a little bit hard for him to do on the TV. It's been mainly him and Pence. Dr. Saucy has been a very, very strong voice, though. And um, I think people are listening to everything they're trying to, to hear, everything that's trying to be put forward. And more bipartisan than not in, in our world of bipartisan political life, more bipartisan than not, we are all trying to figure out what is going to be the world next week. Greg, um, here's my take on this. I'm curious what your reaction is. I think to some extent the, the people, whether it's the campaign people or folks around him in the White House itself, are basically saying to him, Mr. President, your reelection is not going to take place in October and then up November 3rd. Right? Your reelection is at stake right now. Now, in other words, they're telling him this is the moment in which you uh, step up and show us that you deserve four more years. Do you think that take is accurate? I agree. I mean, look, his advisors had banked on two things coming just a month ago. One was a strong economy and second was a was a liberal opponent. And and both of those seem out the window right now. Joe Biden is, is essentially locked up the nomination and the economy is is. Well, I'll put it this way the nation needs to do everything it can to avert an economic catastrophe. So uh, he is he is forced to recalculate everything. And if you look at, I mean, I was just with him in, in Atlanta a couple of weeks ago where he was talking about how he was still going to hold major rallies and still shake people's hands and how quickly the world and his words have changed since then is staggering to me. Um, and, and he sees that this is a, it seems like he sees that this is a dire threat to the nation's economic future. And of course, to, to, to hundreds of thousands of, of residents who could fall ill to this disease. So you're starting to see him kind of step up to that sober reality. So let's talk about electoral politics for a little while on the show today. And Greg, you've got the ball. Let me keep it with you. Um, And let's start by talking about the move of the primary from uh, March 24th, just next week, 
to May 21st. Uh, I mean, I'm sorry, uh, uh, May 19th, uh, right? Um, yep. So, uh, Greg, one of the questions there is going to be that uh, Brad Raffensperger's office is now saying, we've already heard them say we want to get absentee ballot applications out to senior citizens primarily so they don't have to face any of the possible dangers of going into a polling place where there still could be virus being spread. But now they're talking about a much broader effort. They haven't confirmed they're doing it for sure, but they're exploring whether they should be sending absentee ballot forms out to virtually all the registered voters in the state and transferring the whole election basically to absentee balloting. Have I got that right? Yeah, I mean, it is one of the options they're exploring. Uh, that is complicated, you not just the cost of that, but also, of course, counting it. I mean, there's a question that in, in a couple of weeks, uh, I mean, sorry, in, in the next weeks and months, if there'll be even the county officials able to count those ballots. So there's a host of issues. But mm-hmm. look, when you looked at the, when you watched CNN or, or, or Fox News last night and you saw uh, the long lines of voters in Chicago who are all six feet apart, the limiting of voting machines in many of these precincts because uh, because they wanted to keep social distancing exercised, um, you, you can see the disaster that could have unfolded uh, next week in Georgia had we continued our uh, our election without hand sanitizers in a lot of these polling sites with more than 300 poll workers who had uh, who had already called in sick and said that they wouldn't be able to do it because our, on average, the age of poll workers in Georgia is either 70 or 72, depending on the calculation. So... Um, you can definitely see why Georgia took the steps to take this. It doesn't mean it's going to be easy to, to, to even hold an election in two months from now. Um, but you, you kind of saw what, what could have been the story of, of next week, um, last night, when you were watching the, the primaries in other states. Uh, yeah, Jackie, and one of the issues here is there's nothing that tells us that by May 19th this is going to be a done deal, that we're going to be back to normal. In fact... Uh, we're beginning to hear more and more people speculate, and I mean inform people in the public health community speculate that this could go on well into the summer. So May 19th may not have, be as safe a date as the Secretary of State would like it to be, Jackie. Well, it, it may not, and we, we don't know. What we do know is a couple of things. Um, one is that, um, you know, if you want to get an absentee balance and pl- ballot and plan ahead, that might be a good idea. Two, if you, um, we might want to think about uh, for the state, should we try to find poll workers from a different age group and ask other people that, that are interested in helping out the community volunteer? Um, I also think that the more we do physically distance, and again, I'm going to use physical distance as opposed to social distance because I think people need that emotional connection, especially right now. But if we can maintain, if we can all encourage people to get that physical distance between each other, then that actually that will help us, um, you know, get back to to normal sooner. But we don't know is the real answer. Mary Margaret, I wonder if we'll change our early voting. Are you there? Yes, I'm here. Can you hear me? Can yep. you hear me, Bill? Uh, if we'll, we'll yes. we change yeah, our we early, can. will we change our early voting pattern? I mean, can we change so that people can just vote whenever they want to to spread out the voting? Um, again, we are in such, we, we all are saying this, but it, the reality of it is becoming significant. We don't know what next week will look like, and we certainly don't know what mid-April or mid-May will look like. The fact that the presidential primary is over as a pr- 
practical matter, the fact that people's attention is really diverted to the day-to-day unusual lives we're now living, um, I think helps a little bit. I'm, I'm glad that next week Georgia was not a pivotal primary, given where uh, we are in the presidential primary race. Um, the presidential race in the next 60 days is just going to take a back burner. Mm-hmm. We have other small races around. We, you know, we have a sheriff's race in DeKalb. Um, that's an important position, not, not an earth-shaking attention to it. But there are some other elections that are happening to it. So, Greg, let's talk about election uh, politics in Georgia. The AJC just uh, yesterday released a poll from the University of Georgia School of Public and International Affairs, the contractor you use now for that. Let's talk about the Senate race, and we're going we're gonna to turn to what, they, what that poll shows us about presidential in a few minutes. But let's start with the U.S. Senate primary. And we're talking now about Senate race number one, which is the Democratic race to fill, to try to compete to compete against David Perdue in the general election. Do you have the numbers in front of you? Yes, and I can launch right in. It shows that John Ossoff leads the field with about thirty-one percent of the vote, um, which is a, which is a, a, a you know a, a big number. Um, Sarah Briggs Amico and Teresa Tomlinson trail at both about fifteen percent, sixteen percent. So they're statistically tied. But the biggest number is 39%, and that is the number of undecided voters just two months out. So that, that's a pretty high proportion of, of folks who are still up in the air two months out before the May 19th primary where we're supposed to vote. Uh, folks are supposed to vote on this race. And it shows, A, how much this race has been overshadowed by the Kelly Leffler, Doug Collins, Raphael Warnock um, special election that won't be until November. There's no primary for that one. But B, it also shows how hard it will be for these candidates to try to get attention, energy, momentum, enthusiasm, while they're also while the, the public is 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 wrapped about, is captive essentially to coronavirus, um, when when the presidential yeah. race is barely in the headlines, let alone down ticket contests like Senate races and House races, and this is a challenge for all Georgia candidates to try to sort of elevate themselves and to get attention um, and to get voters uh, energy behind them while we're dealing with an unprecedented public health crisis. Mary Margaret, what do you make? You're, I know you're a Teresa Tomlinson supporter and have been from very early on. Uh, the fact that Ossoff has a, you know, a, a margin, a fairly wide margin lead at this stage, had voting, by the way, taken place next week, it would have been interesting to see how that all might have played out. But 39% undecided, Mary Margaret, really tells you that folks have not, as Greg points out, focused on this race. My question is, how do these candidates get attention to make progress in uh, in competing? There's some consultants that are really head knocking about that. I don't, I don't have much advice because it's a, too unusual times to make those calculations. <clears throat> um, John Ossoff, attractive young man with $30 million of money spent on name recognition not that long ago, um, I think would be predictably have greater name recognition in a high undecided race. Um, Sarah uh, Miko did also run a campaign recently. Teresa has not run a campaign statewide recently. I think that these numbers are not very helpful, not certainly not determinative, and reflect the fact that people are not looking at that race 
in any real way yet and that they might not have a good chance to do so uh, between now and May 19th, given the crisis that's diverting us all. If I were advising any of these candidates, I would be hard-pressed to know what to tell them to do other than to go give blood um, at their, where they are able to donate <laughs> blood. Yeah. Jackie, you've been uh, involved with political campaigns since you were probably five, <laughs> six years old campaigning <laughs> at your dad's knee back when he was running for Congress. How do these candidates figure out a way in the midst of everything that's going on to get there? And not only is it the news that that is shutting them out, but they can't hold rallies. They can't hold real uh, the kind of even smaller gatherings that typically a candidate going into a small town, say, in South Georgia would have at the local uh, coffee shop or whatever. It's really making it difficult for these people. Do you do your whole campaign, Jackie, on social media? No, I, I think you've got a point. And, um, you know, I did start very young. And at that time, we had no Internet or any type of social connection. So it was all retail politics. It was all hand-to-hand going to, you know, strip centers and um, small, you know, barbershops and shaking hands, which, to your point, you can't, you can't do right now when you're trying to physically distance yourself from everybody. So really what you can do is um, you can use technology to try to reach those people in different ways. So um, my best advice would be for them to experiment with um, with social media, with Facebook, et cetera, to try to reach the people and to have a message that resonates enough with people that they'll refer them to their friends. Um, but Representative Oliver was exactly right. Um, you know, it, it is it is very hard for, uh, you know, it's not surprising that Ossoff is in, in the first position because he did have a lot of money spent. For the race that he didn't, you know, didn't win. Um, and I think until we get closer to that election, it's going to be hard to see what happens. Uh, Greg, there's some interesting crosstabs in this poll. Uh, Sam Burmes Dawes unpacked it for us. Um, Amico f- does well among young Democrats, according to your polling. She in, in she received 14 percent of the overall uh, uh, vote. Uh, you know, I, I mean, poll numbering numbers. 31% of those, though, are 18 to 29 who said they would vote for her. I, do you, what would account for that from, from your point of view? And those are also the people who are least likely. To, that's the age group that's least likely to vote, too. Well, that's right. Um, they may not vote. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I think part of it is the statewide campaign. She just, she just ran two years ago. Part of it might be, um, you know, being on the same stage as, as Barack Obama um, and Stacey Abrams in so many events. So she does have that high, higher name recognition. Um, you know, it's been interesting to me to see that. That, that number might have been one of the more surprising um, parts of the poll to me was, was because, you know, while John Ossoff and Teresa Tomlinson are duking it out for endorsements and from lawmakers and groups and, and high-profile officials, Sarah Riggs-Amico really has not been in that, in that sort of that, that part of the race. I mean, she – her campaign has not right. been trying to lock up or has not locked up a lot of these big-name endorsements or, or had these big events. It's a bit much more kind of lower-profile campaign, yet she's still right there in the thick of the hunt. Um, so I think, I think that's part of it, her, her enduring name recognition from two years ago, and same thing with John Ossoff, clearly. Um, and, and it really will. It's going to be so fascinating for political scientists to, to study these races in a few years because how folks who can't retail politics who can't hold fundraisers, who can't hold, who can't canvas and knock on doors and do all the things that a campaign thrives on, 
can get attention to to a down ticket contest when when Joe Biden is struggling yeah. to get attention right now in the media. Yeah, that's exactly right. Mary Margaret, one of the other quick uh, uh, ta- t- cross tabs I want to talk about, we got to get to a break. But before we do, uh, this poll also, once again, indicates how important the African-American vote can be in a Democratic race. About 42 percent of black Democrats polled say they're undecided about uh, who to vote for in Senate race number one. So once again, a key, crucial constituency for the candidates, Mary Margaret. I don't think any. Uh, I think Teresa is a native Georgian and who who has been <clears throat> more identified mid mid Georgia, rural Georgia, more uniformly identified across the state may have a better chance to reach those voters. But you're right; they're key and they're not engaged yet at a higher level. They're less. Uh, they've identified a candidate less than the rest of the population has. Um, I don't. I think this is such an unusual year based on this um, virus, that it's impossible to know what the mood will be six weeks, eight weeks from now. Yeah, absolutely. Real quick, Greg, I said I'd mentioned it at the beginning. I mentioned it at the beginning of the show, so let me ask you, you know, how difficult is your job as a reporter these days to cover all this? I mean, you can't go out anywhere. You News conferences are being held by teleconference or whatever. Uh, how hamstrung are you? Yeah, it's, it's been a it's been a unique challenge because my wife is a is a healthcare executive, so she's got to be out every day. Um, she leaves the house every day to go to go to her hospital to help fight this 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 disease. Um, and so the kids are upstairs sometimes with babysitters, sometimes with an in law, sometimes with me. But you're right, like it's hard to, you know. Yesterday I had about 20 questions to ask the governor, um, and it was a remote press conference where the best we could do is email them in or type them in on our and the WebEx. And, you know, he answered, uh, yeah. he, he broadly answered one or two of them, but I've got about 18 more questions. And it used to just be able to raise my hand and try to get, do my best to, to, you know, get one in there. And now, uh, now it's a lot harder. It's going to change a lot of the ways we, we, we do our jobs. And, uh, you know, most importantly from, from now in my basement, instead of from the state Capitol or from whatever event the governor or state politicians are and, how do you cover a campaign if there's no campaigning? All right. There you go. Good news for the governor's office. Greg Bluestein can't hound <laughs> the governor in person to get answers to his questions. Let's get our final break out of the show of the show out of the way. We'll come back, talk a little bit about what happened in Democratic presidential politics last night. We're coming to you, uh, at, it's about 9.50-something in the morning, our live show on Political Rewind, the encore presentation, of course, at 2 in the afternoon. Real quickly, a big a story just uh, broke. President Trump has announced he has closed the U.S.-Canadian border to all but essential traffic for the time being. Okay, um, we'll get more on that as the day goes on, I'm sure. Uh, All right, real quick, Joe Biden won primaries in Arizona, Illinois, and Florida last night. He continues to roll toward the nomination, and now he's reaching out to Bernie Sanders supporters. Here's what he said in a presentation he made in an empty room by a video link to uh, people who are his supporters. Senator Sanders and I may disagree on tactics, but we share a common vision. For the need to provide affordable health care for all Americans— reduce income inequity that has risen so drastically, to tackling the existential threat of our time, climate change, 
Senator Sanders and his supporters have brought a remarkable passion and tenacity to all of these issues. And together, they have shifted the fundamental conversation in this country. So let me say, especially to the young voters who have been inspired by Senator Sanders, I hear you. I know what's at stake. I know what we have to do. Greg, Bernie Sanders people are saying the president, the president, Bernie Sanders, uh, I'm sorry, Bernie Sanders campaign team is saying he's now going to take some time to assess the situation, decide whether to go forward. But Biden has got a big task ahead of him to try to attract the Sanders supporters to his uh, side. Especially younger voters. I mean, that's the one part of the demographic that he continually excelled at and continually beat Joe Biden is, is voters under 30, in some cases, voters under 40. Um, so he's got a, a big task ahead of the United Party. But first, Bernie Sanders needs to decide his next step. We know from the results, he would have to win about 60 percent of the remaining delegates in order to, to overtake Joe Biden in the, in the delegate hunt. So, and that looks like virtually impossible. Uh, his, his chances of winning this are all but evaporated. But, you know, that same thing happened in 2016, and he stayed in the race till June. So you never know. Mary Mark. Mary Margaret, I was just going to mention that there are people who supported Hillary Clinton who still believe Bernie Sanders' refusal to drop out of that race when it was clear she was going to be the nominee cost her uh, the White House. Are, uh, how concerned are you as a Democrat about his continuing in this race at this stage? Unfortunately, I'm, I'm one of those people that feels that way, and I'm a little bit apprehensive. Does a 78-year-old year white gentleman who has had one uh, mode of operation for his entire successful political life, learn, able to change, able to adapt. Is Bernie willing to risk his legacy by making people feel again that he's hurting the chance to bring a Democrat back to the White House? Uh, that's the question I'm asking. Uh, Jackie. Ja- I apologize for interrupting, Jackie. I'm going to give you the last comment on this. Yes. Bernie Sanders' uh, path is a difficult one, but you would know as well as anybody. Um, he has been a passionate, passionate campaigner. At, to, to lose the way he's been doing recently is very personally difficult, traumatic. And so it does seem to me that people need to understand that winding down a campaign under these circumstances isn't easy, and, and he deserves some respect as he figures out what to do, doesn't he? Well, I mean, I think he's going to think that. I mean, I think the whole thing is fascinating because, you know, he's a self-described independent on his Senate website, right, running for the Democratic, um, you know, nomination. I think for the Democrat side, they absolutely should want him to to get out so Biden can go ahead and focus on Trump. But, you know, I don't don't think Bernie's worried about that. Um, I think Bernie's worried about, you know, his, his, his legacy is really rallying his troops, and I think that's what he's going to continue to do. Jackie Cushman, you got the last word in the show. Greg Bluestein, Mary Margaret Oliver, thank you so much for dealing with the kind of unusual circumstances at which we present the show these days, but you all were wonderful as usual. And thank all of you out there for listening to another Political Rewind. We're back again with a brand new show tomorrow. See you then.